Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. Today, we're talking about an area where China leads the world: resettlement. Since 1949, it's estimated that 80 million people have been resettled within China, and more than 100 million are due to be resettled before 2020. To talk about this, we're joined by our guests Brooke Wilson from the Trobe University and Sarah Rogers from the University of Melbourne. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Graham. <laughs> Thanks, Graham. So, Sarah, you've written about what you call the paradox of impoverishment in Inner Mongolia, where you have communities that are being resettled because of poverty, but you found that actually it doesn't necessarily help them become less impoverished. Maybe could you talk a little bit about your findings? Sure. So, the communities that I've been looking at in、um, North China and Shanxi, and more recently Shanxi as well, it seems pretty clear that households are worse off at least immediately following the resettlement. So this is an issue to do with compensation standards, which are much lower in poverty resettlement than they are for a big project like the Three Gorges Dam. So a household might get five、uh, thousand renminbi, so that's roughly seven hundred and fifty US dollars、uh, towards. This is a contribution towards the cost of a new house. So if a new house costs fifty to seventy thousand renminbi, obviously you're nowhere near covering、um, that cost. So Resettled households tend to have a lot of debt because of this process, and then the other issue that comes into it is land allocations. So obviously, China is highly constrained in its farmland and the way that it can allocate land to villages and to households.、Uh, and the communities that I've looked at, the resettled households tend to have lower land allocations because they've been moved into existing communities or. Moved into、um, forestry areas that have been reclaimed. There's limited land to go around, and so you constrain people's livelihoods in the short term because of debt, and then you constrain them in the long term because of their land allocations. So resettlement from the hills to the plains, intuitively, it makes sense, Sarah, that in that the plains you will have better access to transport and better access to services. So, for example, when I talk to Pacific Island officials who've gone on study tours to China, which is nearly all of them these days, they come back,、uh, and when you ask what they've learned, they'll say, "Well, I've learned you take the people from the mountains and you put them in the valleys." In the long term, is it a good idea? And what happens to the land that's left behind? Actually, a lot of poverty resettlement takes place within a county boundary or within a township boundary. So. Often people are not necessarily moved that much closer to good services and good infrastructure、um, because there simply isn't land to allocate to people in an urban area or somewhere, you know, in the valley. So perhaps in the past it happened like that, bringing people down off the mountains. But now it tends to be just shifting people sort of within these these administrative boundaries. So it's a deeply disruptive process, and if you're not actually Doing it in a way that is bringing people better economic opportunities, better、um, employment opportunities, actually bringing them closer to urban centres. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure what the point is. So, Sarah, you talk about what a deeply disruptive process this is, and、um, 
What you say is so interesting because I had an experience when I was working as a journalist for NPR when I visited this huge resettlement project. Uh, It was actually on the very last day when villagers were leaving their village for the last time. So it was part of the South North Water Transfer Project, which is this gigantic project costing something like $60 billion that's going to resettle 330,000 people. But what I was seeing was just one tiny portion of that one village called Guangmenyan, and 353 people were leaving that village uh, uh, forever on the day that we were there. And it was perhaps worth listening uh, to this just to give a little idea of the kind of human cost of resettlement. So today it's the Chinese equivalent of All Souls Day, and this is the last day that the villagers here will be able to give offerings at the graves of their ancestors. So everybody is coming out, although it's raining, they're coming out with yellow papers to burn at the graves to show their respects to those who've passed away. It will be too far to come back next year, says Chen Guangchun, as he kneels in front of his father's grave. It's hard to bear. He lights firecrackers to ward off the evil spirits. Now he's ready to go. He's dismantled his house, killed his pigs, and is stealing himself to abandon the family dog. We can't raise animals there. The houses are too close together. Here, food is cheap. We grow our own. I'll miss my orange orchards here. The amount of compensation I get for them is equal to one year of income for my orange trees. Possessions are being loaded into trucks. This time is different from in the past. The villagers do actually have a choice. Half of them have chosen to be relocated close by, while others have agreed to move farther away. For those staying, the compensation package hasn't yet been announced. Those leaving now will be given 24 square metres worth of housing each. They need to make up the difference themselves. According to official figures, the government is budgeting about $11,000 per head for resettlement costs. Feng Gongwen from the Danjiangko Resettlement Office says each family's compensation package differs. There are lots of factors to consider in calculating the compensation, like the type of house, the number of orange trees, the paddy fields, the wells, and the biomass pools. We're even giving about $150 of compensation for each family grave. So, Sarah, you write a lot about social disarticulation. I mean, just how damaging is it for communities to be uh, moved wholesale in this kind of way? Is there a way for them to kind of rebuild community ties? Yeah, there certainly is. And it depends on how the resettlement is done. So something like um, the Danjanko Reservoir Resettlement, where people have perhaps moved, you know, long distances is going to be much more disruptive than the typical way that poverty resettlement takes place. So if it is moving the community en masse within the administrative boundaries of the township or the county or whatever, I think it's much easier for people to um, hold on to their ties and to and to re-establish their social networks once they've moved. I mean, when I interviewed people, what really struck me was this, despite this extraordinary disruption to their lives, they seemed quite resigned to their fates. And in fact, in many cases... They, they seem to frame it, the act of resettlement as a move that was really going to be beneficial for everybody and particularly for the state in the long run. I remember I talked to a man called Jiang Sihua who was moving after 55 years in one place. And the day that we were there was just this 
awful day. It was raining like anything. And he was having to move just huge amounts of stuff. And what he said was quite interesting. What he said was, I'll, I'll miss these mountains and I'll miss this water. Of course, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave anything. I'm going to miss everything. But I'm doing it for the country. I'm sacrificing my small family to support the big family, by which he meant the country. I mean, when you look at uh, down the road, when you look at the levels of satisfaction of people who have moved, uh, who've been forced to leave their lives behind, what do you find? Do you find that this narrative of um, sacrifice has actually, they've bought into that? When I first did my first surveys and interviews, which was um, within five years of their of their resettlement, people very much still bought into the ideology that they were suffering for the greater good, which is not just in China. This is common ideology that's sold across all of these projects in in Asia and India as well, um, where they also do a lot of resettlement. However, by 2012, when I went back, what I found was that people were not even that interested to speak to me about what was going on. They were getting on with their lives. They they felt that it was an imposition, that it was something that was in the past, where when I was there in 2003, people were very much willing to talk to me and they wanted their stories to be told. They, they still had their Mao Zedong posters on the walls and they really did feel that this was this, this particular project, although it was um, first proposed by uh, Dr. Sen Yat-sen, that it was Mao's dream. He'd written the poem Swimming, where he'd envisaged this big lake rising up between the gorges. So they felt that they were part of something and something that they hadn't been part of for a very long time because this area had been earmarked for such a large construction for, for you know, almost 100 years. There'd been very little kind of meaningful investment in the region. And so people felt that this was an opportunity for them. And suddenly they were going to, I suppose, catch up to the rest of China that they were starting to see on their TV screens. To what extent is this not so much driven by the need to alleviate poverty is by the need to sort of keep GDP levels up? Um, I probably wouldn't link it straight to GDP. I'd link it to the way that local governments function. So, I mean, the political system in China is such that you give people targets, you give people hard targets. So if you want to solve poverty, you give the local officials a table that says you will lift this many people out of poverty in this year. So in 2017, this many people from this village. In 2018, this many people from this village. And resettlement is a way of ticking the box. And they can say, well, we've achieved that. We've alleviated this many millions of people out of poverty. The other sort of interests that get caught up in that is how land is used and transferred, um, how private sector actors come to be involved in resettlement, whether that be agribusinesses who are uh, using some of these resettlers as wage labour, essentially, or taking some of the land that was left over um, and turning it into a tourist park or something like that. So there's all sorts of interests that get caught up in, in this resettlement process, and we can't just say that it is for development purposes. So uh, according to Premier Li Keqiang, for every rural resident that moves to the city, consumption will increase by 10,000 RMB per year. So with uh, more than 10 million rural people predicted to move to the city every year, um, this represents an injection of about 100 billion RMB into the Chinese economy every year. So 
the move towards resettlement is certainly about making consumers out of rural people. At the moment, they're consuming below the urban rate. So they're an untapped reservoir of, of consumption that can help drive China's GDP. So I certainly see a link between um, the increased push for resettlement and um, the relationship between consumerism, um, urbanisation and, and China's growing um, GDP into the future because they've had their lowest growth rate in 2015 for what, I don't know, 30 years or something like that. And of course, there's also a national campaign, Xi Jinping's war on poverty to effectively eliminate poverty in China by the year 2020. And that's also a big driver behind mm. it. And also to, like Sarah said, industrialise the countryside and to um, create large um, profitable farms. And in order to do that, you need to separate you know, the peasants from their land, traditional kind of Marxist thought. But I mean, that's what, what it goes back to, loosening up the land in order to create big agribusinesses that are much more profitable than the small scale um, family farms that we have at the moment. I also suspect part of the answer is that there's a resettlement industry that's developing in China. For example, in the county where I do my research in Anhui, which I'll call Benghai, um, just to keep it anonymous, one of the first reactions in Benghai County to Xi Jinping's war on poverty was to merge the Poverty Alleviation Bureau with the Resettlement Bureau. Now, before this happened, the Resettlement Bureau in Benghai was known as the most corrupt bureau in the entire county. And given you have competition from finance and taxation, that's quite a prize to claim. How they got this reputation was over decades, every resettlement project involved um, them squeezing during the bidding process, during the procurement process, and also the uh, parceling out of the construction aspects of resettlement to their friends and to their relatives, resulting in vastly inflated prices um, for housing once people were eventually resettled. So to an extent, there was an industry um, built up from the grassroots. Is this partly why you're seeing a huge spike in all forms of resettlement in, in rural China? Yeah, certainly. I mean, this brings us to the question of, you know, what is the point of these resettlements? Who is actually benefiting? Whose interests are actually at stake here? And you raise local government and their friends in, in local corporations. Um, there's an interesting quote from Ben Hillman's book, Patronage and Power, where one of the county officials says um, that they'll move any village if they can get the money for it. So, you know, local officials have certain incentives, local businesses have certain incentives. Um, one aspect of this industry that we, we haven't mentioned yet is the sort of scientific side of this. <laughs> Um, so in 1992, the Ministry of Water Resources actually set up a resettlement centre at Hehai University in Nanjing, and they teach masters and doctoral programs on resettlement science. Resettlement science. Yep. So there's an entire sort of academic industry around this as well that looks at these processes and impacts of resettlement, gives advice to different ministries about how to do resettlement better. Uh, they have their masters and doctoral program at Hohai University are also. Uh, providing scholarships and um, educating, uh, for example, Ghanaian um, and other African 
resettlement specialists who are coming to do their programs in order to go back and then practice the science of resettlement back in their own countries, I imagine, under um, some of the many China-funded projects that are going on in, in Africa at the moment. This whole idea of resettlement science, is it in line with the kind of thinking that's going on in Western institutions uh, surrounding resettlement? It's certainly along the lines of uh, the way in which resettlement is practiced in, for example, the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank, um, the kind of very planning, managerial, kind of linear, progressive ways of thinking that if you make the following kind of plan, then the outcome will be the following. Of course, it it never goes that way. Um, Usually they find that their impoverishment is the outcome, even when good planning is put in in place. But it's the same sort of ethos that is is driving resettlement science within China. I think the link between agricultural modernisation and resettlement is something that we probably need to flesh out a little bit more because the resettled communities that I was looking at in Shanxi were being moved and they were also being switched into a cash crop. So they were given saplings, so they were given subsidised apple trees, the saplings, and told how to plant them and they were therefore apple farmers. So you're not just moving people, you're actually fundamentally changing their livelihood um, and perhaps not always giving people the sort of training and, and knowledge required to successfully establish that livelihood. And had they been apple farmers before? No, they were grain farmers. Ah, bit of a change. A little bit. <laughs> so at what point in the process are these big corporations being brought into their sort of decision-making? Because it sounds like you're beginning to see a process where people are, you know, becoming part of a much larger kind of capitalist machine. The Three Gorges, that was the model under which the entire resettlement was conducted. There were partnerships set up between small counties and um, large East Coast rich provinces or, or regions, and these partnerships provided an infusion of cash into each of the counties to build them up. And part of that was these arrangements where East Coast companies would also set up subsidiaries in the area. And part of the later development plan was the um, development of large industry-specific companies, for example, those that were going to process um, the oranges. So this was a long-term plan that the Chinese government set up from the very beginning that kind of played out and and developed the entire region in a way that I think was... um, very clever, but also something very specific to China where you can, you know, they always say they asked these companies to move and to set up subsidiaries there. And while the the labour is cheap in the area, that works really well. But even when I was there in 2011, you could see that some of the manufacturing was starting to move to, um, for example, Cambodia and other places where it was cheaper. Because, Brooke, you've written about how China's experience might not necessarily be successfully replicated overseas. And you actually said the strong arm of the state manipulated much that is reported and is unlikely to be transferable to a liberal democracy. I mean, are you saying that this kind of very strong state-led intervention is unlikely to work in other sort of developing countries then? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. I think China was at a particular, I suppose, historical state at that time where it could stimulate what was going on in the Three Gorges region. People were willing to respond um, and to work with those plans. Um, companies were willing to, and and, um, and East Coast provinces were willing to respond in the way in which they'd been asked to respond. And I think that that kind of response wouldn't elsewhere. 
So beyond China, not all resettlement is seen as bad, and in some circles, resettlement is seen as fashionable again. For example, uh, it's quite popular these days to talk about climate refugees. Are there climate refugees in China, Sarah? The recent report that you um, that listeners might have seen in the New York Times, it was a um, piece on climate migrants in Ningxia. Um, certainly there are climate change adaptation projects in Ningxia and in other provinces that are using resettlement as an adaptation strategy. And in 2013, China's National Climate Change Adaptation Strategy also introduced resettlement as a possible response to the impacts of climate change. Um, So certainly climate change is coming into this discussion of resettlement more and more in China. But to date, you would have to say that... um, you know, China's not at risk of seeing a flood of climate refugees anytime soon. First of all, they're not refugees because they're not crossing a border. They're internally displaced. And secondly, um, as we all know, the sort of drivers of migration are complex and often um, it will be a mix of concerns about the ecological environment, concerns about poverty, concerns about, you know, driving household consumption that will drive these resettlement Program. So to say that resettlements are purely done because of climate change is, is problematic, I think. One of the concerns for me about resettlement is that things like climate change and, um, and poverty are kind of used as altruistic excuses for moving people. And there may be other reasons why people being moved, that is for um, industrialisation of agriculture, basically for access to their land. That's one of my key issues with the the claim that we need to move people for climate change. Can I just ask a general question then about how China's experience is being used by other countries, whether it's experience in these massive, large-scale uh, resettlements is, is translating in, into other, other countries? If China's involved in the project, um, it depends on the funding contract that China's agreed to. For example, I was at the Bui Dam in Ghana earlier this year, and that was a turnkey project. So China didn't take any responsibility for the resettlement or the environmental impacts and just was involved in the construction of the project. And China's rhetoric on this is that they they have a hands-off approach. Um, and they don't get involved in the domestic issues of other countries. However, that said, interviews I did with senior people in China um, a couple of months ago said that that's, that's changing in that they want better outcomes for their projects and, um, you know, that they do have the knowledge on on how to do resettlement and they have so much experience on moving so many people over the last 50 years and that they feel that the same way that the ADB and the World Bank see gaps between their own kind of approaches and policies and the country systems in which they work, that they will be going in and, and assisting the governments in the countries they're working to bring their, their um, policies and legal frameworks, at least for the projects they're involved in. Um, up to the kinds of standards that they that they would expect um, from a from a Chinese perspective and from a Chinese project. So, how would the officials you spoke to view a project such as the Mietsoni Dam project in Myanmar? That was an example of a Chinese company basically being forced to leave Myanmar as largely as a result of the failure of the resettlement project and a nationwide reaction against that. Would they see that as the Chinese company not being hands on enough? 
or would they see that as it having interfered too much? I wonder if that case has caused this kind of willingness to be more involved because most of the countries in which they would be working would not have a well-developed legal or policy framework for doing resettlement. So I imagine it's perhaps compelling them to become more involved. And it makes sense because in a project like the Miyatsoni Dam project, it's billions of dollars that are being lost. It's not a small loss for the Chinese state. That's right. And if you've got people protesting and refusing to move, I mean, every day that's going to be costing. Even if you can't appeal to someone's human side, then at least the business case says, you know, this needs to be done properly so that people at least go willingly Um, and allow the project to be constructed. I think that's also probably why there's no kind of long-term support for resettlers because the main aim is to reduce risk to the the business case for these projects. I mean, as a journalist working in China, more often than not, when you report stories on resettlement, all you hear is a kind of litany of disaster of things that have gone wrong, people not being given enough compensation, the new houses that have been built being substandard, people not wanting to lose their land. And yet, from what you have been saying, none of this puts off the Chinese government. In fact, what we're seeing is plans for much bigger relocation projects than we've seen in the past. I mean, you were saying that we're likely to see 100 million people resettled for the urbanization schemes. Why is it that there is such driving demand for resettlement, even despite all of these issues that keep coming up time and time again? My perspective would be because it's an engineered solution, which the Chinese state really enjoys. So what is the alternative? So if you're looking at poverty alleviation, the alternative to resettlement is in situ, um, like a long-term commitment to developing those communities in all sorts of aspects of their capital. It's easier to just move them. And the Chinese state is set up in a way that makes it easy to do that. The sort of longer-term sustainable development path is not that easy to do in China. So in a way, what we're looking at with poverty resettlement is the ultimate end-of-pipe solution. That is, rather than fixing the whole system, which is the root causes of poverty, you look at the outward symptoms of poverty and fix those up, and everyone can take pictures and go away satisfied. Is that putting it too strongly? Resettlement does look good. I mean, in China, in the Three Gorges, they called them beggars who live in beautiful houses. In Ghana, it's the same. This whole beautification is part of the resettlement. And I think in Thailand, they call the houses bitter lemons. Um, so it's this is a, a global phenomenon. Is, is resettlement is, it's good to photograph. It looks like there's a solution, but you can't eat the houses. It looks good on the brochure, though. That's right. And I think if there's... If there's problems with resettlement, local officials are pretty quick to jump on farmers and blame them. So there's a there was a quote from some research that we did recently that said, a local official said, it's easy to move the impoverished masses, but very hard to eliminate backward thinking. So if they're having trouble sort of adapting to an urban lifestyle or to a, a different kind of farming or, or whatever, it's their fault. What's interesting to me is the kind of narrative that people who are resettled Uh, adopt. And I really noticed that when I was reporting in northern Hubei in 2010 on the South North Water Transfer Project, I met this uh, 66-year-old man whose name was Wei Fuwa. 
And he was extraordinary in that he had been resettled not once, but twice. So the first time he was resettled was when in 1968, when a reservoir submerged his house. And he told me all about this process and how, how terrible it had been. He'd had to move all his possessions with a wheelbarrow and the new housing hadn't yet been built. They had nowhere to live. Um, and then he was moved again in 2010 for the South North Water Transfer Project. And I met him and there was a sort of local government official in charge of propaganda uh, at his side. And I asked him, you know, if he felt really unlucky to be resettled twice. Maybe we can just listen to that clip. So you can hear how the local government official kind of jumps in and says, no, it's not unlucky to be resettled twice. It's glorious. And so I asked Wei Fu, I said, well, you must feel extremely glorious then uh, to be resettled twice. And he kind of laughed really nervously and said, yes, I feel very glorious. You know, I'm making a contribution to the country. Do you think that that whole narrative of making a contribution to the country, do you think that people really um, accept it? I think they do, um, at least in the Three Gorges in the early stages. Um, they very much appealed to to that idea of suffering for the greater good. And that's the kind of rhetoric that carries over in other countries as well. In India, we very much hear the kind of um, greater good argument often wheeled out to justify large uh, dam constructions. So um, that is something that appeals to people because they are suffering and they want to feel that they're not suffering in, in vain. Well, 100 million people are about to be covered in glory, so it's a good <laughs> thing. Thanks to our guests today, Brooke Wilmson and Sarah Rogers, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. I'm Graham Smith, and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and you'll find show notes on Facebook to learn more about the work of Brooke and Sarah. Thanks also to Susie Wilkins for our new theme music and Seb Donta for his amazing gif. Go to our Facebook page to see it. Bye for now.